Let's open our Bibles and get with this to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we considered the first two verses, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. By way of reminder, Paul wrote this letter, to encourage Timothy to fulfill his responsibility as the leader of these churches in Ephesus. But as we remember, the circumstances of the writing of this epistle, it should humble us. Paul is in prison when he writes this epistle. He is awaiting execution. And so we note that there's actually a broader message than just the message simply to Timothy. Here, obviously, there is. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have preserved it for the entirety of the church. And the broader message of 2 Timothy is this, and that is that believers must persevere in faithfulness in the face of hardship. Believers must persevere in faithfulness in the face of hardship. We might ask, what form did this, or should this perseverance take? Well, first, the priority of the local church is to preach the word. Those who shepherd the flock must never neglect the feeding of the flock. We must not pursue relevance at the expense of the truth. And that's what the church is doing today. And and as Oz Guinness said, in, in the churches rush to be relevant to our culture. We've actually become more and more irrelevant. And he answers the question in his book, Prophetic Untimeliness, the question, why would that be? Why do Christians try so hard to be relevant? Let me put it another way. Maybe this will uh, communicate to some. Why do we try so hard to be cool to some? Why do we try to be so hard to be unoffensive to everybody? And then now people aren't really listening to our message. Oh, yeah, I, I know that there are churches that have 25,000 people in them and 30,000 over here and 15,000 over there. But most of Christianity, if we are honest, and we took it across the board in the United States, is an inch deep and a mile wide. All you have to do is look at our culture. We're not having the impact on the culture that we were designed to have. We were designed to be a light in a a dark place. But the church is not having that kind of impact, and we have to say, why? It's not the Holy Spirit's fault. He's omnipotent. It must be ours. And I'm talking about not you as an individual. I'm talking about the church at large. The church at large has, has forgotten the mandate that Paul gave Timothy, he will give Timothy at the end of this letter, to preach the word. That's our first responsibility. That's not the only responsibility of the local church. I'll grant you that. That's not the only duty of a pastor. There are many other duties of a pastor besides just the preaching of the word. But the preaching of the word is central to a pastor's ministry. And if that's not being done, the, the sheep starve. And when the sheep starve, then there's no depth in Christianity. We will not get out there and do what it is we're supposed to do. I'm not saying we become some sort of crusaders against the culture. We could clean up the culture until it was squeaky clean. That still didn't get anybody closer to the kingdom. But we're having no effect whatsoever, at least by and large. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I trust you understand, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic uh, here. I'm just, I'm letting you know this is the, the evaluation of people who study these things. That are, are uh, a lot of people say they're Christian, but when over half of people in the United States who say they're Christian also say they don't believe in miracles, that's the problem. When a great number of people who say they're Christian say they don't, also say they don't believe in the virgin birth, that's a problem. So we have people that are coming to salvation, but we're not feeding them after they get to salvation. We're not helping 
through the Spirit's ministry, of course, to affect their spiritual growth. We must not pursue relevance at the expense of the truth. You see, if you preach the truth, you will be relevant to the culture. That is what is relevant. God's timeless truth. It's the truth of God that makes us relevant, not the silliness that is passed off as worship in too many churches today. I say that not to put anybody down. That is an honest, objective observation. Until we face it, and until we stop as either a local body or the church universal, at least United States version, in, in placing the world's standards upon the church for success or failure, then we're going to be in big trouble. Let me tell you what I mean. There are plenty of pastors out there that are doing a very fine job of preaching the word and shepherding the flock and, and being used of the Holy Spirit to affect spiritual growth in the individual members of the flock that are in turn being let go from their pulpits by boards who don't have the sense of a turnip because perhaps the church is not growing numerically as fast as their goals said that it should. There's nothing in the Scripture about that. The Holy It's Christ's church. He'll build the church. What, what our job is is to build you individually, spiritually. I believe, I believe that the Scriptures give us a model that, that church growth takes place from the inside out. Now, the new model is that it takes place from the outside in. But the scriptural model is that it takes place from the inside out. You grow spiritually. You mature in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then there will be an internal pressure, and certainly it will grow. Because the more you mature, the more you're going to tell others about Christ. You're, and you're going to go out into the highways and byways and give them the gospel. And then they will come in. Church growth takes place from the inside out, not the outside in. Biblically, anyway. So that's the first priority. If we're to persevere in, in, in faithfulness in the face of hardship, that's the first hardship that I can see us facing today. We're not persecuted. As soon as we start thinking we're persecuted as a church, we need to go to some other part of the country or, or the world where they are persecuted. We have certain hardships, though. People ridicule Christianity. People may make fun of us. Even people within our own camp make fun of us and challenge us. I had one of our own deacons one time. He's not even with the church anymore, so you don't try to figure out who it is. But one of our own deacons one time sat down with me and said, your plan for ministry will never, ever work. Never work. My plan for ministry was to grow people individually, to shepherd them individually. So, well, we're going to try it anyway. See, sometimes, sometimes the members of one's own household can end up becoming the ones that give us some of the difficulties and hardships that we face. The first responsibility is to preach the word. And the second responsibility, and this is so important, and this is what we miss sometimes in our tradition. We miss this in our tradition sometimes, and that is that our behavior as Christians must be consistent with what we say we believe. If we learn the Word of God, if we learn the doctrines of, and you fill in the blank, and then we don't live consistently with those doctrines in love, and that's the, the primary application of all the Word of God, then we've got a huge difficulty. We've got a huge problem. We're not fulfilling that which we've been sent here to do. So first, pastors have to preach the Word, and you need to support those that do. I'm talking about supporting them with prayer, support them with encouragement. And there are those who are preaching the Word, perhaps not as many as as there ought to be. But there are pastors out there that are preaching. We never think that we're, never get the Elijah complex. That there's only, there's only a few of us left. There, there are more than we think, but there's not as many as there ought to be. Okay. Otherwise, 
the church would be having a greater impact in our culture. Otherwise, almost every single sitcom that's out there today, and I don't watch them, but I read about them, almost every single sitcom out there today makes fun of Christianity. Almost every single one. Almost every single one glorifies homosexuality. Almost every single one. This might not surprise you. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But I can also tell you, almost every single one of those sitcoms has in their writing core a homosexual. I'm not making that up. That, that's the reality. So you wonder why they put down Christianity and promote homosexuality. Even if they're homosexuals who are Christians, they still have to defend their own behavior. We need to preach the word. We need to live the word. And we need to live the word in love. If you're living the word and it's not being expressed in love, then you're not living the word. Sometimes we learn the Word of God, and then we have such a cold orthodoxy that it repels people. And that's not where we're about either. The more of the Word that you learn, the more gentle you should become. I mean, defending the faith to be sure, but to present the truth in love. That's what Paul tells us we should do. So those are the two things that we studied two weeks ago with regard to introductory material. Now in verse 3, Paul continues. He says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, that my, uh, the way that my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. I, I believe this is as far as we're going to go tonight. Let's just concentrate on this one verse, because this one verse is so chock full of important material that we need to pause and just, just do this. The very first phrase, I thank God. Let's don't miss this. Sometimes we do. Sometimes in our public prayers, sometimes in our private prayers, we get, we're, we're so um, enthusiastic to get right to the point of what we're asking Him that we forget to thank him. And this is a problem. Paul begins by saying he's thankful to God. He's going to delay until verse 5 telling us why he's thankful to God. We'll get to that in, in, in due time. But, but here he tells us he is thankful. Now in verse 5 he'll say, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith that's within you. That's what he's going to be thankful for. But he thanks God first. If we're to fully appreciate the wonder of this letter... We must read it in context. Once again, I have to remind you of Paul's present circumstances as he writes this. I think it's fair to say if most of us were in a cold, dark, smelly, uncomfortable dungeon in Rome, awaiting beheading at the hands of a man who, although he was created in the image of God and he's one for whom Christ died, but at the hands of a man who otherwise was a waste of oxygen, if we were in that circumstance... Bitterness might just tend to creep in, wouldn't it? I count myself guilty. If Nero was going to execute me, I would be a little bit angry with that. But Paul wasn't. In the middle of that, Paul stops and says, I thank God. A lot of times people today, I mean, you hear it, heard it on the radio today, on a very fine radio station, people talking about getting angry with God, getting bitter with God, becoming disappointed with God. No, a thousand times no, thank God. If Paul can do it when he's awaiting execution... In this environment, and that must have been a very difficult environment for him. If he can do that then, then we certainly should be able to do it now. So while others may become bitter, not this apostle, not the apostle Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he, he said, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul provided an example for us all the way up until his death. You've got to be pretty bold, don't you, to say, imitate me. But Paul did. And the only reason he could say, imitate me, is because he was imitating Christ. So ultimately, it's an imitation of Christ 
that we should seek. The scriptures often speak of thankfulness. It's one of the primary subjects of the Word of God, and it makes sense that it would be. I, I think of Jesus, first and foremost. He sets the example for thankfulness. He thanked his Father on many occasions. He, he, he receives food and thanks his Father for the food. There are many times when Jesus thanks his Heavenly Father, one with whom he was eternally equal. <coughs> You might think, well, he shouldn't have to do that. He, he had it coming to him, didn't he? Wouldn't it be the father's responsibility to take care of his eternal son? Well, I'd probably say, yes, it was. But still, Jesus thanked his father. I knew a man one time who who loved his son very much, but, but I, I don't know that he was real sure how to deal with him. And, and as a teenager, the boy kind of got away from him a little bit. You know how that goes? Sometimes teenage boys tend to do that. They kind of wander off a bit. And in an attempt to win him back, because he had the money to do it, he bought his son a brand new truck. It's a pretty nice gift for a high school junior or senior. The boy didn't thank his dad. Instead, the boy came and fussed at his dad pretty vehemently. I think even some curse words were thrown. Because, not because he bought him the truck, but because he did not buy him a sports car. A muscle car, you know, one of those cars that they can drag race on on these streets on Friday nights. I think even blows ended up being thrown over it, and the son moved out because his dad bought him a pickup truck instead of the muscle car. That just reflects an attitude that has gone way down the road toward toward pride. There's no humility. Almost, I would say every bit of humility in that soul had pretty much been squeezed out. When we fail to thank someone for something that they did for us, there's a part of us that's really implying, well, I had that coming to me. I see, I see families do that from time to time. You know, you're sitting down at a meal. Dad's worked real hard. Mom's worked real hard to, to say dad's real work hard, and you're out and, and eating the dinner. Everybody gets up, maybe they complain that the service was slow or we had to wait too long or I didn't want to go to that restaurant. You, you go home, then the next day mom makes a dinner. Are you making that again? Yuck. I can't believe you. Know, not, not thinking that she just spent the most, better part of her afternoon planning that, presenting it as her gift to the family. No gratitude. Just pride and arrogance and, a, and I got it coming to me attitude. Jesus didn't do that. He set the example for one who was thankful. And he expressed that thanksgiving to his heavenly Father. Angels engage in thanksgiving, in praise and thanksgiving both. We see that in Revelation 4 and 7 and 12 and 11. Angels are thankful and they express it. The scriptures tell us that thanksgiving should be directed toward God. And Paul does that. Almost in too many passages that I, that I could even mention here. The thanksgiving should be directed toward God. Let me give you an illustration of that. Let, let's say that, that uh, this coming Sunday, by, by some chance, that the message gets through to you. <laughs> and, and you feel like some spiritual growth has occurred because of that. One of the things that a lot of you do, and, and believe me, I do appreciate it, is you may come by and say, hey, listen, I really, really appreciate what you did. You know, I, I really appreciate that message or, or something along those lines. You know, the way I take that is, is a, I, I, say, I take it that you're using it with a sense of encouragement. Something like that. But I know, I know that the way it really works, especially with you, 
is the ultimate thanks is directed to God because it's His Word, you see. It's His provision. That's where the ultimate thanks should lie. If someone comes up and does a great kindness for you, people have come up and done great kindnesses for me, and I thank them for it. They're the human conduit. But then I go home, I bow my head and, and pray and thank God because He's the ultimate source of whatever that blessing was. That's not a put down to the person that gave it. Far from it. It's, it's a compliment to the person that gave it for me to realize who the ultimate giver is. So the scriptures tell us that, that thanksgiving should be offered to God. Thanksgiving should be offered through Jesus Christ, in the name of Christ. Thanksgiving should be a part of worship, the scriptures tell us. Private worship, Daniel tells us that, as well as public worship, Psalm 35. It's, it should be a part of what we do. And when we get away from that, it probably is symptomatic of the fact that we've got our attention turned toward ourselves and away from God. Thanksgiving should be a part of public prayer. I noticed it tonight. I was waiting. I, I, I wanted to see. And, and I probably estimate almost a third of the prayers, of the prayer that was offered tonight, a third of the time was, was done in Thanksgiving. That's great. I didn't tell you to do that. But that's the way it ought to be, and that's the way it was. I hope we continue that. I hope we remember to thank God for what he's given us. We should thank God for everything. Now, this is one of the hard ones. This is one of the most difficult ones. But this keeps us from becoming bitter. Because if we thank him for everything, we realize he's in control of everything. There's nothing that gets to us that didn't pass through his fingers first. And we have to know that it's for our good and his glory, no matter how difficult it seems at the time. Thanksgiving should be given upon the completion of great undertakings. Remember back in Nehemiah? When, when, when the task was finished, there was a great thanksgiving to God. Isn't that interesting? Because they did the work, but they thanked God. They realized that the work wasn't got done, even though they were the human instruments, unless God was behind it. Thanksgiving should be given un, under the completion of great undertakings. The scriptures tell us in a, in a couple of different places that we should thank God before we eat a meal. We should thank God before we eat a meal. Um, it's easy when you're around a lot of believers to do that. Sometimes it's more difficult when it's a mixed audience, but I think we ought to do it. You know, and even if, you, if you're the only believer at the table and everybody else doesn't want to, I, I have, would have no problem with you bowing your head silently praying. You're not trying to make a point. You're not like the Pharisees who stopped in the middle of the road, made everybody wait to pray. You're just being a committed Christian. And people will watch, and they'll respect it. Thanksgiving should be made according to Ephesians and First Thessalonians always. Thanksgiving should be made according to Psalm 30 and Psalm 97 as when we remember God's holiness. Have you ever stopped and paused and thanked God for who He is? The fact that He is holy. The fact that He has revealed Himself to us and that we can have a relationship with Him by grace through faith in, in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us many times in, in episodes where Thanksgiving should be rendered, it should be rendered when we recognize the goodness and mercy of God in our lives, when we recognize the free gift of salvation. I hope you thank God for that every day. I hope you do. It should be given when we recognize Christ's power and the fact that He is reigning and will reign on earth for a thousand years and forever and ever. We should thank Him for the reception and effectual working of God in others. Do you ever thank God for how He's working in someone else, or are you so selfish you only care about how He works through you? Or when someone, else, when someone else comes and says, listen, I was able to be used of the Lord to lead this person to salvation. 
do you stop and pause and, and pray in your own soul, thank God for using that person. Thank you so much that that person was used in order to bring someone into Christ. You know one of the biggest problems with athletic teams today? You, you talk to most coaches, I'm talking about professional athletic teams, is that they don't play like a team. Especially professional athletes, they're, they're in this, and I see it in a large way in baseball. They're out for their statistics because their statistics is what's going to get them their paycheck. And there's no team. Nobody's going to take one for the team. Basketball is in a very similar way. That's why a professional coach's job is to get them to play like a team. Now, there was a generation past that that wasn't the way it was. Christianity, we're all, theoretically, we're all supposed to be working for the same boss for the same goal. There should be no jealousy, no petty jealousy between people in Christianity. You should thank God when he uses someone else to accomplish a portion of his purpose. And when you can start doing that, then you may, for the first time in your life, uh, have come to a point where humility is starting to creep in and pride is moving out the door. We should thank God for deliverance through Christ from indwelling sin. That's Romans chapter 7. For victory over death and the grave. Have you ever paused to do that? Now, now maybe you have. If you've just been told you've got cancer or you've got heart condition. Or maybe your mom does, or your dad does, your sister or your brother. Maybe you've paused in. But what about when you're perfectly healthy? You ever thank God before you go out in the morning that you have eternal life and you can't lose it? And thank you, Father, that no matter what happens today, I know one way or another, either I'm going to be home for dinner with my family or I'm going to be in heaven with you. Either way, it's going to be great. Have you ever thanked God for that? 1 Corinthians 15:57 tells us we should. Daniel chapter 2, verse 23 says we should thank God for wisdom and power that he gives us. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says we should thank Him for the triumph of the gospel, the way the gospel is spread, for the conversion of others in Romans 6, for the faith exhibited by others in Romans 1 and 2 Thessalonians 1. Here's one I like. We should thank God for the love that others exhibit. When love is shown between believer and believer, we should thank God for it. We should thank God for the grace bestowed on others, not just when it's bestowed on us. But when God is gracious on other people, we should thank God for the zeal and the enthusiasm that's exhibited by other believers. Here's one that is not as understood as it should be. We should thank God for the nearness of God's presence. Psalm 75, Psalm 10 also dwells with that. It deals with that. Psalm 51. There's a misunderstanding that I, I wish I could clear up. A, better than I will right now. Yes, God is omnipresent. Absolutely, He is omnipresent. But we do talk about God being close to us, a special closeness. That special closeness is synonymous with the Greek New Testament idea of fellowship. So while God is omnipresent, there are times when you, when you may not be experiencing the presence of God because you're walking out of fellowship with Him. Um, there are hymns that talk about Christ coming in abiding. Well, yes, I know that that Christ is um, omnipresent. He is everywhere present. That is true. The Father is everywhere present. The Holy Spirit. But the psalmist does say, listen, don't flee from my presence. He's talking about an experiential appreciation of God's presence. So we, Psalm 75 tells us we should thank God for the nearness of His presence, the experience of His closeness. We should thank God for the appointment that we have to specific ministries whatever that ministry is for you. We should thank God for willingness 
to offer property in God's service or someone else who is willing to give sacrificially. Think of Barnabas, the early church, sold a piece of land, gave all the money to the church. Didn't have to, but he did. We should thank God for that. We should thank God for the supply of our bodily wants and needs. Now, that's frankly, that's where most of our thanksgiving comes, doesn't it? Thank him for the food that he gives us, for the clothes on our back, for the job, for the money that's in our bank account, for the good transportation that we have, for our health. And then we ask him to restore it. We should thank God for all men and all things, the scriptures conclude. Now, there are others. That's just a sampling. Now, on the other hand, the scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 1, that the wicked, the, the evil, if you remember our categories when we studied the book of Romans, there was the immoral person that needed a savior, the moral person, and then the, then the Jew. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the immoral person refuses to thank God because they're full of the pride of their father, Satan. That's why. So Paul says, I thank God. So he is following Christ's example. We should follow his. The text goes on to say, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did. Paul sees his spiritual heritage not as one who broke with his past, but as one who stands in the direct line of his Jewish ancestry as a worshiper of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul sees himself as just another in a long line of those who are serving God and worshiping Yahweh. And these words can be seen the contemplative reflection of a man at the end of his life and the evaluation of his life one of ongoing service to God in line with his spiritual heritage the life of a man with a clear conscience Paul was following in the line and in the heritage of those prophets who came before him now he's not a prophet, he's an apostle but he was following right in line with David and with Elijah, and with Elisha and with Jeremiah, with Moses all following the pattern of Father Abraham and coming to, to God by grace through faith, but all faithful. Watch, though. Not all those men, none of those men were consistently, perfectly faithful, were they? No, all of the ones I just mentioned had flaws. Every single one of them. The scriptures mention them. But Paul is pleased. He's very pleased to say that he is following in the heritage of his forefathers. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Two important themes are introduced by this phrase, themes that play a central role as Paul encourages Timothy. The first is that Paul and Timothy have a lot in common. And this commonality should encourage Timothy as both he and Paul suffer and then persevere. Some of the commonalities both have a spiritual heritage. Paul speaks of his spiritual heritage going all the way back to this line of prophets. Timothy has a spiritual heritage. We'll see a little bit later. His dad was not a believer. His dad was a Gentile, Greek, referencing in the context to being an unbeliever, but his grandmother and his mother were, and his grandmother and his mother taught him the word of God. That's his spiritual heritage. So they both share that. Paul shared, actually, in Timothy's commissioning to ministry, and very possibly in his coming to Christ in the first place. So they have commonality there. But, but primarily, they both have suffered. Paul is suffering in a much different way, granted. If they had to change places, I'm sure Timothy wouldn't want to switch places with Paul. Paul is suffering in prison. But Timothy is suffering his own kind of suffering in Ephesus. 
There are difficult times in Ephesus. It's become a bit of a rowdy bunch, a bit of a rebellious bunch. And that's why Paul is having to encourage Timothy, don't let go of these reins. It's too important. You've got to get this group worked out. Throughout the first half of the epistle of 2 Timothy, Paul is constantly comparing Timothy to himself, encouraging Timothy in the face of persecution and suffering in Ephesus. The second theme. The first thing was that Paul and Timothy have a lot in common, but the second theme, introduced in verse 3, is the one I want to dwell on for just a moment. And that is the call to remember one's spiritual heritage. Paul and Timothy's heritages were different. Paul served God as his Jewish ancestors had. Timothy didn't have that specific spiritual heritage, but he had a spiritual heritage. The point of the comparison between the two is that both have a rich spiritual heritage that should function as an encouragement to them. I want you to listen to me very carefully. I don't really care right now if you take any notes or not, but I just want to have your ears and I want you to listen very carefully to this, hopefully objectively. It is a mistake to disregard one's spiritual heritage. It is a colossal mistake to do that. But I observe it being done all the time. As we move down life's road, we sometimes tend to look in that rearview mirror a little too much. And perhaps we do observe that some of the things in our past are not what we wanted them to be. Assuming, and I do assume, a certain level of spiritual objectivity. Maybe a former pastor, or maybe a former church that you might have attended in your youth, was flawed. Maybe it, maybe it was flawed. Let's just assume that for a moment. Maybe that Sunday school teacher that you had when you were eight didn't teach the story of the Israelites in the Red Sea the way it should have been taught. Maybe that's true. Let's assume it's true right now. While no spiritual heritage is, is without negatives, it is a mistake. Oh, i got to tell you, it is a mistake to spend a significant amount of time so focused on the negatives that we become blinded to the foundation that was laid for us by those flawed ministers, those flawed Sunday school teachers that served us in the past. And oh, by the way, in case you are not aware of it, you are currently being served by a flawed minister. And you currently attend a flawed church if you don't know that now you'll you'll wake up one day and you'll discover it I promise you that you will and then what are you going to do once you wake up one day and you find out that uh, that there were flaws here that the pastor wasn't perfect that the associate pastor wasn't perfect that the board makes mistakes from time to time not not many but, I, but I'm saying but but there are mistakes that are made what are you going to do then? Are you just going to move on and look in the rearview mirror and then start trashing this ministry as well? Are you going to develop, this is a good one, are you going to develop a website with a forum on it so that others can blog and try to get past the damage that was done to you at your previous church? That was a reality, by the way man came to me several years back and, and he wanted me to announce a website 
from the pulpit of a place that they could go to, that anybody that wanted to, to go to, that they could maybe counsel with others about how they might get by psychologically after the hurt that they had experienced under their previous pastor. Listen, I have no doubt maybe that's the truth, but listen, grow up. Get a real problem. Now, last time I said that, I threw a phone through the wall because it was a pretty bad argument. But that's why I never say it again. But, but watch. Listen, if you drive a car down the Gulf Freeway and all you ever do is look in the rearview mirror, you're going to know a lot about what's going on behind you. But you're going to crash that, crash that rascal in front of you. There's no future for you if all you're doing is looking in the rearview mirror. Paul says, forgetting what was past. It doesn't mean that you ignore it. It, it doesn't mean that you, you don't try to not make whatever mistake it was again. But all you're doing is making yourself look bad if you're just trashing past churches. Say you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. I don't agree with, with much of Roman Catholicism. But if that's all you do, is, is go around telling people how you were so hurt because you grew up Roman Catholic... We, well, get past that. Forget what lies behind. Move on forward. If you've got another day, start moving forward today. It does you no good to live in the past, in that sense. We should appreciate the past. We should learn from the past. But if you're letting the past drag you down like that, you're not going forward. And your spiritual growth will be delayed. Don't do that. And if you decide to leave Pine Valley Bible Church because it's imperfect, uh, and you, you may discover that, I've already told you today that it is. So if you're going to leave and do it, just do it now. I, and I'm serious. I say that with all the love of Christ. Save yourself the trouble. You know? Go ahead and start the website if you want to, but it, you're going to be the one hurt by that. I'm going to almost be flattered by it, frankly. <laughs> Maybe not. I'll probably get hacked off. But, <laughs> but I'll pray for you, brother, when you do that. Because I haven't grown to the point that Paul has, but someday maybe. Let's move on. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. This is another real significant phrase, and unfortunately I've, I've um, ad-libbed a little too much, and we're almost to the end. But, but the phrase, with a clear conscience, is significant in this, with regard to the concept that Paul is teaching and it's also, again, significant when it comes to where he is. I keep bringing you back to the content. Uh, to the context, rather. There's content and context. I keep bringing you back to both, but now to the context. Paul's in prison. Paul's about to be executed as a criminal. Do you know that? And granted, we talked about, two weeks ago, we talked about Nero and how much of a low life he was and how it's, you talk about somebody, how, much, how difficult it must have been for Paul to, to deal with that. But he's saying, listen, I've got a clear conscience. I'm not here because I did something wrong. He refused to be ashamed, despite the fact that he was suffering consistently. This is a tribute to a man who served God with integrity, not perfect, not perfection, but with integrity, with consistency. Paul be the first person to tell you he wasn't perfect either. And he didn't care how anyone else interpreted his circumstances. Not at this point. He's dying. What does he care? He lives now for an audience of one. But the fact is, he's lived for that audience of one for many years. So it's not hard to start doing it at the end for him. 
He wants the evaluation of his Lord. If his Lord is fine with him, then he's fine. That's why he says, I have a clear conscience. Paul's not suffering because he committed a crime. He's not suffering because he sinned. He's suffering because he had been a faithful servant of God. That's why he's suffering, and he knows it. He's not bragging here. He's just, he's just getting it off his, his chest. I don't care what they tell you, Timothy. I didn't do anything wrong. Do you ever read those statements that people make right before they're executed up in Huntsville? I don't know why, but I read every one of those articles. I'm always interested in seeing what they say right before they die. Because most times, if they've trusted Christ, they'll let you know. And I rejoice over that. I'm happy about that. But some of them don't. Some of them, to the end, doesn't matter what the evidence was against them, they will not fess up that they did something wrong. Paul's just saying, listen, I didn't. So he's not like one of those guys. He really didn't do anything wrong. I know there may be people that get executed in Huntsville that it ought not to but I, I just imagine it's a minuscule number but Paul wasn't guilty and he has a clear conscience and he tells us about that then finally he says I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefather is as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night Paul's thanks to God comes specifically during his regular prayer times it would seem that Paul devoted regular, consistent times during the day to prayer. Perhaps planned times. And when he prayed, I'm sure that his list was pretty long. But here, Paul says that he prayed regularly for Timothy. The word constantly, we've studied this before in other of Paul's letters, it, it doesn't refer to non-stop prayer. Paul would have had time to stop and write this letter if that's what he had meant. But it indicates that every time he prays, which is regularly, he remembers Timothy in every prayer. Now, what an encouragement that must have been. What an encouragement that must have been to know that the apostle was praying for you at least twice a day, perhaps more. What a great encouragement. Actually, the term night and day was the normal Hebraic way of viewing time. See, their day started at sunset. We would say, we pray for you day and night, wouldn't we? But did you catch that? This says, I pray for you night and day, because that's the way their day started. So the first three verses, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promises of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers day and night. Paul's prayers were regular and included thanksgiving to God for his good friend and his fellow minister in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He made those prayers with a clear conscience, following the pattern of his forefathers who had gone before him.